You're listening to the Bearded Theologians podcast hosted by Matt Franks and Zach Bechtold. We hope you enjoy this week's show and you can find out more about us by going online at beardedtheologians.com where you can pick up a few t-shirts, listen to a few old episodes, and find ways that you can connect with us. Thank you for listening. You're listening to the Bearded Theologians podcast hosted by Matt Franks and Zach Bechtold. And today we have a uh, very special guest with us on the podcast. We have the Supreme Dr. Ashley Wagen, who is the General Secretary of the General Archives and History of the Methodist Church. Ashley, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you all for the invite. I'm sorry I left my beard at home. So, and and I'm not a theologian. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm <laughs> one of those weird guests who neither is bearded nor a theologian. <laughs> Well, we can put a beard on you in, in uh, you know, we can put it on in post, right? And I would argue that you are a theologian, um, but that's a different conversation. For <laughs> different podcast, day. different day. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being here. Would you uh, tell our tell our listeners a little bit, you know, who you are, where you're from, what you do? Yeah, so um, I am a laywoman who was um, raised in the Arkansas Annual Conference. Um, both my parents were ordained clergy persons serving Arkansas for like God, probably a combined 60 years. Um, I then traveled around. I think I've moved about 15 times in the last nine, 10 years. Um, I now live in New Jersey, uh, here in Madison, New Jersey, which is where the repository for the United Methodist Church is located. We are located on the campus of Drew University. Um, and it's from here, we have, I guess in our building, we have six miles of linear paperwork that document some, only some of the historic record of the United Methodist Church and its antistant bodies. That is the most United Methodist Church stat I've ever heard. We have six miles of paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot of paperwork. And I mean, that doesn't count the artifacts and the books and everything. That's just sheerly like committee meeting minutes. Um, <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> I don't even know what to do with that. That's you. You know, at first I got really excited about that, like, like, oh, this would be really great. And then when you said committee meeting, yeah. I was like, oh, 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 that's painful. I mean, we we do have a lot more um, yeah. cool things than that. You know, we have John Wesley letters, we have Francis Asbury letters. Um, some of my favorite things that we have, we have Francis Asbury's appointment book that I think it's from like eighteen ten to eighteen thirteen or something like that, and. And in it, he has the name of a preacher and then like three words to describe that preacher. And it is harsh. I mean, <laughs> he he was like straight and to the point and he was like useless, um, married and married was not a good thing. And that's Barry's literal book. Um, you know, sometimes he would say too zealous. And so it's fascinating to kind of get that that lens, but we do have a lot of really cool things like that. Um, we have um, which is very exciting, um, and and other things. So it's not just committee meeting minutes, but there are a lot of committee meeting minutes because Methodists love committees. Gosh, we love our meetings. <laughs> That's awesome. So um, tell us a little bit about what you all or what you do, what, uh, you know, kind of what you're working on and and what you're enjoying about uh, all of that. Sure. So um, the General Commission on Archives and History, we have two main, um, I guess, disciplinary mandates. One is the preservation 
of the historic record, which is what my team of archivists do here at Drew University. Um, the other is the promotion of the historic record. And that's kind of where I come in. I am a historian by training. Um, before becoming general secretary, I was a professor at a couple different, at, well, at one seminary um, and then at a university as well. And so I do a lot of teaching. I do speaking gigs. Um, we have our own monthly podcast called Untied Methodism. Um, and lately we've been working on different ways to get small groups, Sunday schools, congregations, individuals, you name it, kind of involved with, with Methodist history in a different capacity. And so we've started an online course platform called the UM History Hub. Um, and through that, we've, over the last two years, we've written about five or six different courses. Our most recent one is a course called Radical Methodism. And it's radical, which is spelled R-A-D-I-C-L-E, which I had never seen it spelled that way before. I, I first saw that um, at the church that I go to, which is the UMC in Madison, New Jersey. Uh, the preacher did a series called Radical Stories. And I sat down with the bulletin. I was like, he misspelled radical. That's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> but it turns out it is it is a true spelling of the word. Um what it means is like it's the first part of a seed that emerges from the seed itself and starts uh, intermingling and intermixing with the soil to become a root. Mm. And so that's the radical. It's that thing that leaves the seed and looks to be rooted. And so we did a play on that and we're calling it radical Methodism. And we look at those, those different origin stories of Methodism. So it spends a lot of time with John Wesley kind of in the first two modules. And then the next couple of modules look at the way that Methodism has kind of been burst time and time again. Um, also at some of the shoots that have come out of the seed, um, the flowers that have bloomed and the spoils of the plant as well. So it's, it's a four part uh, course. It is free. It is plug and play. So everything is there for you. The leader guide, a student guide, a hundred pages of primary sources. Um, but it is it is ready to go. And and we are so excited to be able to offer this. And, and one of the reasons we kind of designed the course is as I'm out talking and teaching in local congregations, one of the things that I noticed that that we're missing is kind of that strong rootedness in Wesley. A lot of people don't know what it means to be Wesleyan. They probably can't tell you the difference between a Methodist and a Baptist or Methodist and Presbyterian. So we designed this course to be able to, to help people rearticulate our identity as Methodists and as Wesleyans. It sounds, it sounds like a, a really great program for, like you said, like, you know, the goal is to get it into the local church. Um, and I think that that's something, I mean, you're totally right. Like as someone who I'm from Oklahoma and I can't tell you the number of times I had to explain the differences between a Baptist and a Methodist, uh, because, you know, it's just not something that is taught, you know, or, uh, the conversation held, uh, in a lot of our churches, because we just, um, I really don't know why we don't like, I, there's so much fruit and so much that we can learn from it that is, that is vital and healthy and, um, I think not to talk about, so, you know, we were talking before the show about, uh, John Wesley's general, uh, physic, uh, that like, 
that's one of Zach and I's favorite reads from John Wesley, just because it's, <laughs> it's interesting to uh, uh, think about the remedies that he would use. Like oh. for baldness, like there's, he, he encourages electroshock for baldness and, and onions. Yeah. Uh, and I, onions. <laughs> yes. Yeah, rub an onion on, on the top of your head. Yes. Uh, and so obviously those haven't worked because I know Zach's tried them and that's why he's wearing a hat today. Um <laughs> But I think that that's key to to make that connection. Um, I think one of the thing one of the things that reason why I reached out to you was because of the push to have the archive really kind of come out of being just this obscure thing off in the distance to actually coming in and wanting to be a part of the local church to nurture that history to share that history because there's there's a lot to it. It's it's I have found myself in the last year talking more about Methodist history to my congregation. Than I ever have before, because there's questions about, you know, we're talking about uh, the 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 fracture that's happening in Methodism. I'm like, well, this isn't the first time. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, like, teaching that history and why it's vital uh, for our, our health is important. And when I first saw that you were doing this thing, at first I was like, they misspelled radical. And um, I find that funny because I'm not, I'm, I'm known for misspelling things all the time. And I was like, yes, somebody else is getting it. Uh, but then when, you know, you explained it and I, uh, I was like, oh, wow, that, that's really cool. Um, I think it's a great tool. I think it'd be a great tool for, for congregations to, to lean into. Yeah. Thank you. And, and, you know, um, talking about, you know, our, our current situation that we're in a couple of years ago, we wrote a course called, um, split separations and reconciliations that's also it's on the same platform um history hub and it gets into exactly that right like we've this isn't the first kind of um splintering or schism or split whatever you want to call it that we've experienced and historically in the first 50 years of the methodist episcopal church there were at least a dozen kind of splinterings and so we look at that and and what are the common what are the common reasons that even now we're still seeing in this in this modern day um, splintering? What are the what are the main t reasons that people leave? And and one of them that I really hold uh, hold true to is that people just don't understand who Wesley was and how cool he was. I don't know if I can cuss on this podcast, but he was badass. Yes. I mean, yeah, he really, he really was. Um, he was a rabble rouser. He you know, made the right people angry and he did it all to spread the love of God in this world. And to me, if, if your Wesley looks anything different than that, then, you know, yeah, you're going to be kind of irked by some of the things that historically the United Methodist church has done and, and contemporarily, but uh, less so today. No, I think it's such an important conversation about where we came from, right? all the way back to Wesley and even before and how, how we got there in you're both right. The, the lack of, of the lack of teaching that we do about being United Methodist and Wesleyan is, is tough. Um, we're looking at confirmation coming up in the fall. And uh, I mean, I've been, I've kind of moved a whole lot like you have in the last 12 years <laughs> uh, and countless churches I've been to haven't had, confirmation classes or Methodist one-on-one classes for adults or what you call them, whatever you will in years. And, um, even in, even in churches where I've done confirmation on a regular basis, I always have adults ask, well, can I do that too? You know, I, I remember doing it when I was in the fifth grade. I don't remember anything about it, you know? Uh, 
and just that importance to continually teach and reteach uh, who we are as United Methodist, who we are as Wesleyans. Um, and I don't, I don't know why. Maybe you you've pinpointed this in your your work and research of of when we began to diverge from that uh, the idea of teaching our history and um, who we are. Um, I would say it's a it's a really gradual process, right? And so, you know, there's there's a number of different ways to look at it because there's the early Methodist Episcopal Church, right? We're founded in 1784. That is separate from Wesley, right? Mm -hmm. Wesley was a British ordained person in the Church of England. He never separated from the Church of England. Um, he broke a lot of rules of the Church of England, which is right. one of those things that got him in trouble and kicked out of churches and denied access to pulpits. Because, again, he he would do things like, what's, one of my favorite Wesley stories is, um, he's in Oxford and he's preaching, I think it's at St. Anne's. And it's one of those required things of him as, as a fellow from the University of Oxford. He had to come back and give sermons every now and then. And, you know, by this, by the time he gives this sermon, I think it's the mid 1740s, the Methodist movement is, is kind of growing. And so he's kind of irked that he has to go back and, and preach to all of these like Oxford dons. He's just like, oh, I have more important things to do. Like there are more important people in his mind that needed to hear the love of God than a bunch of Oxford dons. Mm -hmm. So he goes and the sermon that he gives is called scriptural Christianity. And essentially he tells all of these other ordained persons sitting, listening to him, none of you are really Christian because none of y'all follow scripture and you don't follow scripture because you're only concerned about yourselves and your personal relationship with God. When was the last time that you went out and did mission amongst the poor and with the poor? When was the last time that you cared about someone who said, and then, you know, not surprisingly, um, he's, he's not asked back. Um, he's, he's, he's kind of let go of, of the requirement to come and preach for Oxford. And, you know, just time and time again, he did those types of things, you know, of just kind of, uh, skirting the boundaries of the institutional church in order to push it to be more missional and to be less concerned with the people inside of their parishes on Sunday morning and more concerned with those outside who didn't have access or the ability to come to the parish or didn't feel comfortable inside the parish. So Wesley was always concerned about those on, on the outskirts. Um, and so when, but when we look at Methodism, um, particularly the Methodist Episcopal Church, early on, it starts as that. It, it has that spirit of Wesley, of, of being predominantly a movement of people on the margins. Um, they were known for mixing genders. They were known for mixing race. All of these things, which you did not do in kind of that early revolutionary America. But for that, um, for kind of upending certain parts of society, Methodists were repeatedly harassed, beaten, imprisoned. And so Francis Asbury, the first bishop of the Methodist Episcopal Church, kind of makes a decision to calm down some of the upending things that 
we were that we were supposed to do as Wesleyans. And we slowly begin this process of becoming, quote unquote, more respectable. Right. And, and respectability really kind of arises after the Civil War. Right. So it takes 70, 80 years for we really have brick churches and are predominantly middle class, predominantly white um, movement that's really catering more to society than challenging it. So it's it's really this gradual thing. But, you know, I think today, when you look at the United Methodist Church, right, we're we're still kind of seen as this, this beacon of predominantly white middle class America. Um we we aren't known as the rabble rousers who are, you know, pushing society in certain ways. I I was doing um I think it was a panel a couple nights ago with the Indiana Annual Conference. And we were talking about the the fact that this is a, an election year. And the question was, what can United Methodists do, given that this is an election year? How can we live into our Methodist identity? And, you know, I, I kind of threw out the idea of, you know, Methodists historically have been all about increased voting access and, and voting rights and gave various examples of that. And one of the things that we can do as Methodists or as a United Methodists is organize um, getting people to the polls. And it just so happens that in Indiana, there's a law that's before their state um, Congress right now to ban people from being able to drive other persons to the polls. Mm. And in my head, I was like, okay, <laughs> so to be, to live into the United Methodist witness in Indiana, if that passes, United Methodist churches need to get their church vans yep. <laughs> to drive people to the polls. Yep. Like, and and put, um, you know, our social principles that talk about voting access and put our resolutions that talk about voting access all over the outside of the van and drive people. Yeah, it's breaking laws. Yeah, people will get arrested. But that is like doing things like that is what it means to be Wesleyan, to be United Methodist. It is a concern for those in society and a willingness to get in some good trouble. Right. Well, and we live in such a time it, it, with with everything that's going on in the world and our denomination and everything to reclaim that. Uh, and to reclaim that heritage and living into the social principles and and pushing uh, pushing the boundaries and being badass rebel rousers, right? Like we we've always had opportunities to do that, but now's the time uh, to really fully lean into that and uh, and do it well. And and all the while reteaching who we are as Wesleyans and what makes us United Methodist, right? Yeah. And that's also one of those spaces, you know, when you look historically at um, the various kind of splits or splinterings that we've had, you know, any number of them, the the main branch or, you know, kind of the, the branch that follows the Methodist Episcopal Church, um, whenever it had a group leave, it never took time to figure out how it was going to operate differently or to reclaim its identity. Um, you could look at, you know, in 1843, uh, abolitionist Methodists, which is the hardest two words to say in a row, abolitionist Methodists, um, depart. And it's one of the largest departures prior to the 1844 schism. 
1844, when Methodists come together for general conference, they're trying to have that moment of reclaiming identity and saying, you know, we need to go back to what to take a firm stance against slavery. And, but the thing that, that begins to dominate the conversation is about Bishop James O. Andrew having inherited slaves. And so that overshadows that, that conversation about who are we going to be in this moment? Um, at different mergers that we had in both 1939 and 1968, again, we, we didn't do that work of, Here's who we're going to be. In 1939, it was all about being the biggest because other Protestant denominations were also dividing because of fundamentalist and modernist uh, theologies that were emerging. Methodists came together for the opportunity of being big because they saw being the biggest with having the most influence, power, and voice. And it worked. They were. But what kind of statement were we making? What kind of identity were we, did we have behind that power? And then in 1968, when we merged with the Evangelical United Brethren, again, this was in the 1960s is one of those decades of the most rapid social change in American history. And instead of coming out and saying, we are for this, 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 and this, we instead said, you know, we are theologically plural which is a beautiful thing in theory, right? Being able to hold different theologies that are, are um, might conflict with one another, being able to hold those together in worship is beautiful. But we are also practical theologians as Wesleyans. And so we have to live out and embody that theology. And when we live out and embody theologies that are, you know, on completely different sides of a, of a quote unquote issue, then what kind of identity are we putting forth as well? And so we've never done this hard look at ourselves to say, this is what it means to be United Methodist. Wesley did that. He laid out time and time again, what it meant to be Methodist. He did it in the character of a Methodist, thoughts upon Methodist, a short history of Methodism, advice to the people called Methodist. Each of those treatises that he wrote, he begins with saying, there are many people out there who identify as Methodist, but let me tell you who my Methodists are. And then he lays it out. They are people of holiness of heart and life. So how can we be a people of holiness of heart and life in 2024? Right. What does the United Methodist Church look like now? And we have to be willing enough to lay out our own characteristics and know that not everyone's going to like what we're saying that we are or who we're saying that we are. Mm -hmm. But that's OK, because we need that firm identity. And I also think, too, that uh, something, too, is to reconcile some of the things that we where we've misstepped. Um, and. Oh gosh, I can't remember. I, I want to say it was around Thanksgiving time. I had talked to the congregation about uh the uh John Wesley coming over to Georgia and talk and literally laid out what he had written 
about the indigenous people. Uh, as someone who is indigenous, I was like, I'm having to reconcile this. Like, please understand, like his words here are very harsh. Uh, and, but yet we have to understand, like, like there's just so much that we have to unpack here uh, to be able to understand what he was trying to do in some of a good way, but also with what limited knowledge he knew of people and, and especially of indigenous people, what was being said around the time. And I'm not lying. Like after kind of coming, stumbling across what his journal entries were, <clears throat> it was a little hard for me to like, I had to st take a step back from him a little bit and just say, Ooh, um, I need to need to process this a little bit. Uh, I still have a love uh, for what John Wesley did. I have a love uh, for his, a lot of his words, uh, but it, and it found itself in Methodism. Uh, you know, you look at our only ethnic conference in the United States is still the Oklahoma Indian Missionary Conference. I'm not gonna lie, that just says a lot. Uh, and so we still have a lot of work to do, but it's also that recognition of just that recognizing of um, who we are, who we desire to be and, and saying that like, it's going to, we're going to have some missteps along the way, which is very Wesley in its own approach. It's about a journey, like, and, and recognizing that and lifting that up. And I think that that's where, for me, knowing the history is vital for us to move forward, because if we're moving forward blindly, we're going to make the same mistakes that we had made before. Um, and so that's why, like, I, I don't, I don't know about Zach, but I definitely have a really fond love and appreciation, especially for church history and just knowing how, it's impacted the congregation, whether we recognize it or not. Yeah. And that's, that's definitely one of those things that, um, the general commission on archives and history prioritizes is holding ourselves accountable for our past. I mean, as Wesleyans, we're all about accountability, right? Yeah. Um, if we're going to keep seeking perfection, right. If we're going to keep trying to walk ourselves and see where have we done harm? Um, and we have done historically a lot of harm, particularly to those groups that Wesley would have said we need to be most in ministry with, right? Um, you know, from 1787, only a few years after the Methodist Episcopal Church was formed, acts of racism led to the departure of African-Americans from St. George's in Philadelphia. And began what would eventually be the birth of the African Methodist Episcopal Church in 1816. Um, when it comes to indigenous nations, you know, Methodists, you know, began a uh, mission with them, I believe, in the 1810s. And then it quickly became a tool of white supremacy and a tool of cultural genocide. And, you know, there's even kind of historic evidence that the way that Methodist mission schools were constructed were foundational for how schools like Carlisle were eventually constructed. And Methodists need to own that. We have to own that. We have to figure out how we wrestle with it, how we tell the story, and how we repent for it. Mm -hmm. Right? And and um, some of the work that we are doing right now is, rely is around Indigenous boarding schools. So we are working with the General Board of Global Ministries and United Women in Faith to strategically research Methodist involvement in indigenous boarding schools. And what we've done right now is we kind of have a tentative list of schools that we've housed in the past. 
um, and our annual conference archivists are at work as we speak, looking through our annual conference archives for records of those schools to see you know, if we have student rosters, to see if we have curriculum, if we have stories that we could then begin to unearth and tell in order to hold ourselves accountable. And actually, um, Zach, I'll be at, at Bozeman UMC yeah. this September. And that's that's one of the, the purposes of our board meeting is to present what we hope would be kind of an interim report on boarding schools um, and, and tell some of those stories. And that, that's the most important thing, right? We have to be able to do that and and not look at our history with rose-colored glasses and say, gosh, we did it right. We didn't, right? And we, we're still making mistakes and oftentimes inadvertently doing harm and sometimes intentionally doing harm, right? Like we have to own that reality as the church. Mm -hmm. um, and you're exactly right. Moving on to perfection is, is owning it, teaching it, and moving forward, not doing it again. Um, and we have such an opportunity uh, coming out of this current splinter to do that very thing, uh, to look and see and and truthfully say, this is who we are. And as much as everybody wants it to be at this general conference, I don't think it is. I think we have a lot more work to do before we are truly able to get to that point. And I think that's where the frustrations are going to rise in the next year, uh, it really next couple of years of, well, gosh, we're just going to keep doing the same thing. No, we have a lot of work to do before we can get there. Um, not even just over the last six years, uh, over the last 25, 30, 40, 50 years, we've got a lot, a lot to do before we can truly, truly just own who we are uh, in a way that is healthy and hopeful and moves us on to perfection. And uh, it's doing this work right here, having these very conversations. Um, and I think we're scared to. I think we're scared to have the conversation of, oh shit, maybe we weren't that great. Uh, maybe we harmed a lot of people over the last 150 years. Um, and how do we move forward from that? I think we, uh, I think we get real head in the head in the sand on on some of our history. Uh, you know, we love talking about Wesley. We kind of like talking about Francis Asbury. Uh, we we, but we don't go much further than that. It kind of stops pretty quickly. Of like, uh, it gets a little rough. Um, you'll if you haven't already, you'll learn uh, about Brother Van here in Montana. Uh, it, it's fascinating stories, right? Like just incredible stuff. And many of our churches still hold that history uh, closely because it wasn't that long ago. Uh, he wasn't uh, late eighteen hundreds. Um, I mean, I had. I had church members who their grandparents housed them and they remember the stories, you know, they passed all of that down. So there's still a strong connection to our circuit rider, um, which is really cool. And uh, they still tell those stories. So that history is strong um, and meaningful. And yet we don't tell some of the other stories, right? We're, we're not, we're not owning the harm that we've caused throughout time. I'm waiting and for you to sing uh, harvest time. I will. Uh, when we get <laughs> licensing for it, I will. <laughs> 10 seconds isn't good enough. <laughs> but isn't it old enough now that it's a common tune and we could actually probably. sing it? Yeah. Probably. Uh, it was funny. So I, I did Harvest Time a few, actually it's been a couple of months ago and people that actually, it, it's a Brother Van song that everybody like loves uh, in Montana. We, we tape it in the back of our hymnals. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so when I did it, 
you know, here in Colorado, it was funny how many people actually knew the song. Like, oh, wow, it's been so long since we've heard this song. And it was because there were a couple of people that were in Cheyenne who were actually at a church that he helped uh, kind of get off the ground. And so it was kind of cool uh, to make those connections. And uh, Ashley, you, you definitely bring up a point of the boarding school stuff. And that's something I've been looking into uh, when I was, especially when I was in Tahlequah, having those conversations with some of the scholars in the area about like, what is the church's connection to this, knowing that they did have a deep connection to it. Cause I remember uh, my grandfather would tell me stories about uh, his mom and what his mom's experience was surviving Carlisle. Um, and um, you know, I, I, I've kind of had this a little bit of a fire lit under me of like, I want to be involved with this uh, just so way I can have that knowledge, but then also help the church uh, recognize that like, this was definitely a bad thing. Uh, and we, we can do, we, there's some things that we need to do to not just make it right, but just to make it better. Um, and uh, it, it was funny. So my women's group here has asked me to do a presentation uh, um, being indigenous. And I was like, well, um, I'll, I'm, we're going to talk about trauma because I'm, I'm going to have to unpack that for you. So that you understand my experience is different than most uh, that you would know in this area. Cause uh, you know, we have reservation lands in Colorado, whereas in Oklahoma, everything is open. There's not just a designated space. Like there is, you know, there is a separate space here in Colorado and you live on the reservation. That's not necessarily the case in Oklahoma. You know, I grew up in a normal town. Um, and so you know, it's just having those conversations. I think that that's key. Um, recognizing the history and, you know, I, I definitely value the work that, that you all do. Uh, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. Like I, I'm a huge, I love history. Uh, and just thinking that you have access to some things that would be cool to see <laughs> is kind of makes me a little bit jealous, <laughs> not the committee meeting notes, but some of the other <laughs> stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, um, that's going a little crazy um the I, I think y'all are very right though about you know needing to have be willing to have these conversations um and one of the reasons i think so people are often so scared to do it is it it exposes certain vulnerabilities mm -hmm. um you know it if you are willing to talk about how your faith historically has done harm you know then that might uncover or might make you think about how your faith might be doing harm now and most people go to their faith for a sense of comfort um and so to think that it could be doing harm kind of negates that comfort that we often get from our faith but that's again where I think we as Wesleyans, like our, this is where we hold that personal and social holiness in beautiful tension because our faith, our Wesleyan faith can comfort us, right? We can be in love with God and feel the peace and the joy that comes with that. But as Wesleyans, our personal faith, that joy should also compel us to go out and be uncomfortable through spreading that love of God in places and spaces where we might not normally. And so holding that tension, I think, is one of those key points of what it means to be Wesleyan and to be Methodist. And part of that going out and embodying the love of God 
requires that honest Mm self-assessment of how am I doing harm instead of doing good? Right. Right. There's, there's a reason that Wesley gave, he didn't just give two general rules of do good and love God. Right. He, he put in there specifically do no harm. In other words, you have to check yourself to make sure you're not doing harm. And that's it. We, we have to hold that tension, right? If we can't have the hard, vulnerable conversations about who we are and where we've been and what we've done, we can't push the margins, right? We can't see and hear the hurt and the the need outside of our four walls of the church. We never will, right? And that's, you said it earlier, that's how we've gotten to this point here. We've, we've forgotten that. Um, and it's been a, a long progression over time of, of forgetting and and not, not doing right, not pushing, uh, not pushing those boundaries, and uh, but owning that and it helps us go back, right? It, it, you're exactly right. Talk, it, identifying where we've done harm, but we can't go do good if we haven't done that, and uh, and it just yeah, it's so important to be in those vulnerable spaces, and it's hard, but if if we don't, we'll never we'll never see people the way that Jesus sees people. Um, we just won't. So Ashley is, um, we, we would definitely want to honor your time. Uh, and, and Zach wants to go skiing. So we, <laughs> we like it is snowing uh, outside of my window. <laughs> so, um, but you know, are, are, are there some things like, what are some ways that, uh, our normal, you know, average person that may be listening to the podcast, what are some ways that they can connect in to, to yeah. learn, uh, from you all? Yeah. So, um, I would say probably the easiest way to figure out what we're doing, um, in terms of pro- programming is to go to resourceumc.org slash archives and history. Um, through that kind of webpage, uh, you can see, uh, links to our radical Methodism course. There's also links to the UM History Hub in general, which has our other online courses. Um, There's also a link to our podcast, Untied Methodism. And right now we're doing uh, two episodes of of our podcast a month, kind of leading up to general conference. And we're trying to really highlight the history of certain big pieces of legislation that are coming to us. So we look at the history of the social principles, since we're getting a revised social principles. We look at the history of regionalization, since regionalization is a big uh, discussion uh, coming to this general conference. And we'll also, I think, look at the history of um, kind of women's participation and women's leadership within the church, because paragraph four is also up um, as legislation again for this general conference. So I encourage people, resourceumc.org slash archives and history. You can find out um, all that you want to know. And if you want to do specific research with the archives, you can click the Explore the Archives button on that page, and it'll take you to our um, own personal webpage where you can do some research. And we'll definitely have a link to that uh, in uh, in our show notes. Um, Zach, do you have any other uh, questions before we... Ashley, thank you for the work that you're doing and yes. that, that you're doing with your team. Uh, it's, it's so cool. Um, history is not always the fun thing for people and you guys are doing it in such a way that it's accessible. It's fun. Um, truly the, 
somebody new into the United Methodist Church can approach this and really get a sense of of who we are and what they're what they're getting into, right? Um, it doesn't have just to be weird pastor Methodist nerds that really enjoy this stuff. Um, I, so thank you for that. That's that is huge uh, in helping us move forward as as a denomination as as the people called Methodist. And uh, thank you for that work. Yeah, thank you. It's it is truly a, a joy. I find such joy in my work and in getting to just be dorky every day and tell amazing stories and tell hard stories. And you know, um, I travel around with a John Wesley bobblehead, and we get into all sorts of shenanigans. So it's it's fun. Yeah. But do you have the John Wesley stress doll? Stress head. <laughs> I do. I do. I I've gone through like four John Wesley stress dolls. Yep. Um, I've also, oh, this is probably a little weird. Um, so I took a Jack in the box, um, you know, the old school toy and decapitated the, the Jack in the box that was in there and put a John Wesley stress ball as the head for the Jack in the box. So it's literally, it's a Jack, it's a Jackie in the box. I like um, that. It's, I like quite, that. I, I don't consider that weird at all. Like that's no, something no. I Looks like I'm going to uh, I, Goodwill today and uh, buying a Jack in a Box. <laughs> if I could figure out how to mass produce it, I would, but um, I have no idea how you would do that. So, yeah. we're on it for you. We'll see if we we'll, can we'll, we'll we'll figure it out. <laughs> Perfect. I I just have one last question. What is your uh, and it's going to put you on the spot? Maybe uh, what's your favorite Wesleyan fun fact? Mm. Um, favorite Wesleyan fun fact. Hmm, that's hard. I mean, I, I do love the idea, you know, y'all brought up the primitive physic earlier. I, I loved the idea that he kind of kept up with like medical sciences mm -hmm. of his day and, and put out the primitive physic just about every year with those different home remedies. Um, mm -hmm. to me that, that shows that he wasn't kind of your, your typical, Um, but he was really, he was concerned with people's bodies. Mm -hmm. And he knew that like, if your body was hurting, you probably can't focus on the love of God. Yeah. Um, so, you know, whether it's, you know, your body's hurting because, you know, you're having hair loss and you need to rub an onion on it. Or, you know, um, if you had a tummy ache and you needed to just lay down with a warm puppy on your tummy. Um, <laughs> or just, my, he he always recommends just drinking water, which is a great um tool that we should all do more of is just drink water. Just drink water. But, that's right. You know, I, I I love that he kind of reminded us that body and soul are are intertwined. Um and so his dabbling in the medical sciences is always really fascinating to me. Yeah. We we share that fascination. Uh so yeah. that's fun. Thank you. Thank you. Um so we definitely want to encourage our listeners to go and check out uh, the the resource link and and uh, get connected to the Commission of Archives and History. It's a great way to get to know uh, and understand Methodism a, a little bit better. Um, and you know we'll have those definitely in our show notes. And also encourage our listeners to go back and listen uh, to all of our podcasts. And you can find and and buy a T-shirt uh, for uh, that loved one because it is Valentine. We're coming up or by this time this will air. Valentine's Day will be over, uh, but. Uh, you know, there's, let's see, there's Aldersgate Day you can buy a t-shirt for. 
there's you know annual conference season that you can buy a t-shirt for and if you really want to go big you can buy a bearded theologians t-shirt for every day of general conference to wear uh you know for those that uh you know uh need to uh be there in charlotte and have a bearded theologian t-shirt and so you can find all this at beardedtheologians.com and again ashley thank you for uh, joining us today and so for the bearded theologians i'm matt franks uh i'm zach Bechtold. thanks for checking us out i want you to subscribe and like this video and put that thumbs push that thumbs up Thank you for listening to the Bearded Theologians podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share on all social media outlets. You can check out old episodes and more information at beardedtheologians.com. Thanks for checking us out.